Imagine a woman, we'll call her Patricia, uh, sitting among the rocks and crags of Hemis National Park in northern India, watching and waiting to catch a glimpse of the elusive snow leopard found there. Shout out to Walter Mitty. Anyway, Patricia and her friends are sitting very still and very quiet, camouflaged in the rocks, and they're fixated on one cleft where snow leopard activity was reported. Even blinking felt risky. While watching the cleft, Patricia noticed a blurry black spot in her sight. She froze. But it dawned on her that something was on her glasses. So without turning, she slowly pulled her glasses off about 15 inches from her face and focused her eyes on this little little black spot on her glasses. And all of a sudden, her friends, they went, oh, which broke her focus on her glasses. She put her glasses back on and she looked, but it was, it was too late. The snow leopard had appeared while Patricia was focused on the dirt on her glasses, and now the snow leopard was gone. See, Patricia was looking in the general direction of the snow leopard. In fact, the snow leopard was in her line of sight, but because she focused on the dirt for a brief moment, she missed what she had traveled to see. Her friends saw beauty, Patricia saw dirt. We're part of a church. We come to corporate worship. We're in the right setting. We're faced in the right general direction. But sometimes we are so preoccupied with vain and worthless things that we fail to see the main attraction, the stunning beauty of Jesus Christ who is right in front of us. Corporate worship at Jerusalem Church is designed to help you see the beauty of Jesus Christ in the Word and sacraments so you can enjoy Christ. Are you preoccupied with anything that is keeping you from seeing the beauty of Christ? Covenant theology is complex, and some of you may be struggling to understand how covenant theology and this series uh, are relevant and helpful to you. Uh, Here's some encouragement. Like a puzzle, the beauty of Christ in covenant theology may not be immediately obvious to you. His beauty emerges by putting more and more pieces together from the Old and the New Testaments. And you know, doing that takes time. It takes careful Bible study and it takes discerning application. For this series to really help you, for you to get something out of this series, you have to want to see the beauty of Christ. And you have to look deeply into Scripture in order to see Him. I can't do that for you. Only God can do that for you. So my aim is just to preach Christ so that if God so pleases, you will, by His grace, see Christ in the Abrahamic covenant. Now you may wonder, why is He spending so much time on the Abrahamic covenant, on Abraham? And it's because... Abraham is so important to understanding the one covenant of grace. 
and how we should respond to it. Abraham helps us understand the gospel, the covenant of grace, and therefore Abraham helps us see Christ. Already we've seen Christ in Abraham's life. Abraham was worshiping a pagan, pagan gods in a pagan land, but God graciously came to him, delivered him out of paganism and a pagan land, graciously entered into covenant relationship with him, and promised him offspring, which we learn in Galatians 3 is Christ. God graciously promised to make Abraham a great nation to bless him and to make his name great, to bless all the families or nations of the earth in him, to make his offspring as the dust of the earth and to give his offspring a land to enjoy forever. God said he was Abraham's shield, his reward, and that Abraham's reward would be very great. He graciously promised Abraham a son from his very own loins and that his offspring would be innumerable like the stars, God promised Abraham gospel, and Abraham believed God and was counted righteous. The New Testament, particularly Romans, Galatians, and Hebrews, tell us the Abrahamic covenant is about Christ, redeeming for himself a people from all nations to enjoy eternal life with him in God's eternal kingdom. God promised Christ in Genesis 3.15 and revealed more about Christ in the Abrahamic covenant. So then, it is important for us to understand Abraham, that he received the gospel from God, that he believed the gospel from God, and was counted righteous by believing the gospel from God. Previously in this series, I have given you various um, definitions of covenant, trying to just give you different ways to look at it. And I'd like to give you another short definition that is particularly relevant today. What is a covenant? O. Palmer Robertson defined a covenant as a bond in blood sovereignly administered. A bond in blood sovereignly administered. Robertson explained this. When God enters into a covenant with men, he sovereignly institute a life and bond covenant. Or a life and death bond, rather. A covenant is a bond in blood or a bond of life and death sovereignly administered, end of quote. So remember, bond, blood, and sovereignty. Robertson's definition helps us make sense of the covenant ratification ceremony in Genesis 15, which we'll get to in a bit. So let's dig into Genesis 15, 7 through 21. And here's the main point. God unilaterally entered into gracious covenant relationship with Abraham and promised to keep the covenant himself. God unilaterally entered into gracious covenant relationship with Abraham and promised to keep the covenant himself. I mean that Abraham did not negotiate. God made the covenant with Abraham without Abraham's input. Then, unlike any covenant in the Near East in Abraham's day, God promised to fulfill the covenant by himself. And later on, we'll see just how unique that was. Let's begin with two observations from Genesis 15. Number one, Genesis 15, 1 through 6, is about God's promise of a son. And number two, Genesis 15, 7 through 21, is about God's promise of a land. 
Okay, Genesis 15, 1 through 6, is about God's promise of a son. Abraham believed God's gospel promises, but he was struggling to understand how his offspring would be so great and so numerous when he had no offspring. With faith, Abraham said in verse 2, Oh, Lord God, what will you give me for I continue childless? With faith, He said in verse 3, Behold, you have given me no offspring. And the word of the Lord came to Abraham in verse 4 and clarified the promise of an offspring from Genesis 3.15, Your very own son shall be your heir. Now, not only was Isaac in view there, but the promised serpent-crushing seed of Genesis 3.15 would be a son of Abraham. God took Abraham out of his tent and then he had him gaze up at the innumerable stars in the sky and promised him, so shall your offspring be. Then in verse 7, the focus changes from a promised son to a promised land. Genesis 15, 7 through 21 is about God's promise of a land. The land of promise is mentioned in verses 7, 8, and 18, but in verse 18, The promised offspring is linked to the promised land. It says, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land. Again, at that point, you need to think two-stage fulfillment of that promise. God was so kind to give Abraham more than words. He ratified his gracious covenant with a ceremony. To give assurance to Abraham. Therefore, this ceremony tells us a lot. We have to understand this ceremony. So here is God's unilateral and gracious covenant with Abraham. Verse 7 says this. And he said to him, I am the Lord, or Yahweh, who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. God stated his identity and God stated what he did for Abraham. The one triune relational covenant-making and covenant-keeping God graciously delivered Abraham out of paganism, out of a pagan land, and gave a promise for his offspring of a new land, just as God later graciously delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt to give them that land. Both events picture God's work of redemption and his gift of eternal of an eternal kingdom. You see, folks, God takes initiative with the sinner. God takes initiative. Remember, a covenant is a bond in blood sovereignly administered. Abraham believed, he obeyed, but his faith overflowed from God's redeeming grace, and his obedience overflowed from the faith that God had gifted to him. Verse 8 says, But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Well, God had told him. All right, that's sufficient reason, isn't it? God told him. But at this point, is Abraham a skeptic? Is he an agnostic? Well, consider verse 6. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Plus, Abraham was using the covenant name of God, Yahweh. He's no skeptic. He's no agnostic. Abraham believed. Abraham had faith. Abraham trusted. And he asked this question for his own assurance. 
I think Abraham was childlike. Let's, let's say that Maria, uh, that I tell Maria that we're going to go play tennis. And so she excitedly puts on her shoes and she grabs her racket and she gets ready. But 30 minutes later, we haven't left the house. And so now Maria is concerned and she comes and she asks, Daddy, are, are we going to go play tennis? Now, what did I tell her? I said we're going to go play tennis and we will go play tennis. And she trusts her father, and she loves her father, but it doesn't seem like we're going to play tennis because 30 minutes later, we're not on the court playing tennis. Abraham trusted God, but he was struggling to reconcile God's promises with the fact that he had no son, and in fact, there were other people dwelling in the land. Uh Uh-oh, what's happening here? God, what are you up to? I can't see this. I believe, but boy. And here is where God's amazing covenant ratification ceremony comes into play. God loved Abraham so much that he didn't just give him his word, but he actually condescended and gave him something visual to see the ratification of the covenant. Listen to verses 9 and 10 again. And he said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. Now, folks, that's weird. That's weird. What? What was happening? Well, God used elements of ancient Near East covenant making to assure Abraham of his gospel promises. Abraham took a female calf, a female goat, and a ram. He killed them, and he cut them in half. And he killed the birds too, but he didn't cut them in half. Blood was dripping, okay? And and Abraham took the bloody animal pieces, and he separated them, and he set them in two rows, kind of like an airport runway with bloody animal halves instead of lights. Are you you following that? And and a covenant now, you got to remember this, is a bond in blood. Blood, folks. Sovereignly administered. Now, naturally, some birds of prey are interested, and they come, and they try to get the animal carcasses, And Abraham fights them off, which may be symbolic, as some scholars talk about, of the unclean nation seeking to destroy the descendants of Abraham. Something very significant happened in verses 12 through 16. The sun was descending and a deep sleep fell on Abraham, yet God continued to communicate with him. He didn't stop. A dreadful and great darkness fell on Abraham in his sleep. This is heavy. This is heavy now. A dreadful and great darkness fell upon him as he's sleeping. This is not a rainbow and cute, cuddly teddy bear's dream. That's not what this is. This is heavy. This is real. Verses 13 and 14 say, Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the, the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Do you understand what's going on there? Abraham pointed, or I'm sorry, God pointed Abraham generations ahead into the future. Israel is enslaved in Egypt. 
After 400 years, God would bring Israel out of slavery in Egypt in great number and with great possessions and would lead them to the land that God promised to Abraham. God promised the bitter slavery of his people. He promised it. He then promised the redemption of his people. He then promised a possession of the land by his people. It sounds like God rescuing us from our sins, doesn't it? God said, no for certain that your offspring, all of this, folks, is riding on God honoring and keeping his promises to Abraham. See, Abraham even helps us make sense of the Exodus, folks, and so much other scripture as well. The Abrahamic covenant is advancement of the one covenant of grace which began in Genesis 3.15. And I hope it's becoming clearer for you that God is sovereign. He has a plan, a good plan. He is working out his good plan. And nothing can thwart God's good plan. Nothing. Abraham is obvious evidence of that. Doesn't take much to see it. In verse 15, God told Abraham of his peaceful and blessed death. And John Calvin said this, The sense, therefore, is that although through his whole life Abram was to be deprived of the possession of the land, yet he should not be wanting in the essential materials of quiet and joy, so that having happily finished his life, he should cheerfully depart to his father's. But Abram willingly and joyfully went forward to his death, seeing that he had in Isaac a certain pledge of the divine benediction and knew that a better life was laid up for him in heaven. That's significant. Abraham died with peace, with joy, with comfort because the promise of Isaac was gospel. Gospel. Verse 16 is fascinating. After 400 years of Egyptian slavery, God would deliver his people and bring them back to the land that God promised Abraham. Now, a generation is 100 years. So what is the fourth generation? 400 years. See, the Amorites dwelled in the land, but God was going to give the land to the offspring of Abraham. So in those 400 years that they are not possessing, his people are not possessing the land, God was showing so much lavish grace and patience to the sinful Amorites who were not walking with God. And after Israel was delivered from Egyptian slavery, Israel returned to the land. And because of, at that point, the completed iniquity of the Amorites, God gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel, Joshua 10, 12. God removed the Amorites out of the land and gave it to Israel to fulfill his promise to Abraham many years after Abraham died. And ultimately, we've got to think beyond this. Ultimately, it was Christ who defeated the enemies of sin and death, and inherits all things in order to share it with the people that he redeems. The Abrahamic covenant is gospel. Now, we return to God's covenant ratifying ceremony. It's still going on here. Imagine all those animal pieces in pools of blood forming a runway. Before we unpack this, I'd like to give you some background on ancient suzerain vassal treaties. So this will be helpful to you. Covenant-making ceremonies were commonplace in the Near East, in Abraham's day. You had a suzerain 
or a superior king, and a vassal or an inferior king. The suzerain is the mighty conquering king. The vassal is the defeated lesser king. Instead of the suzerain wiping out his enemy, he made a covenant with them. And the covenant had four parts. Number one, a preamble which listed out the parties involved in the covenant. Secondly, a historic prologue listed out what the suzerain had done to deserve the allegiance of the vassal. Number three, a statement of requirements told exactly what the suzerain required the vassal to do. And an example of that would be the payment of taxes and shipping off the young guys to serve in the suzerain's army. Four, a statement of blessings or curses listed out the blessings given to the vassal by the suzerain when the covenant conditions were met, like the suzerain providing military protection, court systems, and an economic Network and the curses detail what would happen to the vassal if he broke covenant, like he'd be slaughtered by the suzerain. That was standard structure in Near East suzerain vassal treaties. The vassal was in absolutely no position to negotiate. This is what it's going to be, or we'll kill you. Okay, where do I sign? Right? All right, I'll do what you want. The most widely used ratifying ceremony was this. The suzerain had animals killed, their bodies cut in half, and the pieces separated in two distinct lines forming a pathway between. Then the suzerain and the vassal would walk together side by side through the bloody animal pieces, which was symbolic of their vowing to each other, if I break the conditions of this covenant, may what happened to these animals happen to me. In other words, let me be brutally killed and torn into bloody pieces if I break this covenant. Now, you can understand then, knowing that little bit about history, why making a covenant was often described as cutting a covenant. Cutting a covenant. Cutting and blood were involved. Therefore, the covenant itself and the covenant ritual were closely related. Now, that is a clue for the coming weeks when we get to circumcision, covenant, cutting, blood. Do you see where this is going? Do you see this ceremony anywhere else in Scripture? Absolutely. Jeremiah 13, uh, I'm sorry, 34, verse 18 is helpful. Judah, in that context, broke covenant with the Lord, and God thus declared this. And the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me... I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and pass between its parts. Do you understand what God is saying? I will destroy them. It will be a bloody mess. Then in, num- then in verse 20 of Jeremiah 34, God said he would, quote, give them into the hand of their enemies and dead bodies shall be food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. Judah broke covenant with God, broke the covenant that they made, and God brought curses upon Judah. Now, if you look closely at Genesis 15, verses 7 through 21, you'll notice at least two significant differences between God's covenant with Abraham and ancient suzerain vassal treaties. One, God unilaterally entered into covenant with Abraham. 
You see, in ancient times, the gods that they worshipped never, ever entered into covenant with human beings. It did not happen. It was unheard of. And second, two, we would expect both God the suzerain and Abraham the vassal to walk through the bloody animal pieces together, signifying a mutual commitment to keep the conditions of the covenant. But my friends, what happened in that moment? This is amazing. This will blow your mind. This will revolutionize how you understand your own salvation. Verse 17 says, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. Abraham was sleeping. He was paralyzed. He was unable to do anything. God didn't invite Abraham to walk down the runway. He didn't say, this is for you to commit to this. This is strikingly unique. What's up, what's up with the smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passing between the pieces? In the book of Exodus, God's presence is described as a pillar of cloud and pillar of fire and says Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. This is amazing. This is absolutely amazing. God himself was making a covenant with Abraham and God himself was swearing by himself to fulfill all the conditions of the covenant By himself. God swore a self-maledictory oath. In the event the covenant was broken, God himself would suffer the curses. Brothers and sisters, can you see Christ? Nowhere in ancient history do you find the suzerain swearing by his death to the vassal. Didn't happen. The vassal swore by his death to the suzerain. But in the Abrahamic covenant, in the covenant of grace, God himself himself swore by his own death. Astonishing. John T. Rhodes wrote an important paragraph. He wrote this, quote, get what he's saying here. I will take on myself the conditions for fulfilling my covenant with you. And if they are broken, I will take the punishment for them. I, God Almighty, Lord of hosts, will be torn in two, undergo death if this covenant is not kept. God signs in his own blood. Remember Abraham's question that prompted the ceremony. How can I be sure you will give me this great place, all those descendants, and bless me? God's answer is emphatic. I swear on my own life. What this will entail for God remains to be seen, but already one of the Bible's great doctrines is coming into clear focus. Abraham is saved by grace alone. To say that we are saved by grace alone is simply to say that we're saved by God alone. It is God, not Abraham, who will repair the damage done by Adam. Amazing! Amazing. Do do you understand what he said? John T. Rhodes. It's so profound. Where would Abraham find assurance? Where can you and I find assurance of our salvation? In the faithfulness of God. We didn't walk through the pieces. We didn't swear by our own death. We didn't keep the conditions of the covenant. Salvation from start and to finish is the sovereign and amazing grace of God. It is the work of God, and our assurance is found 
in God's faithfulness, not our own. The Abrahamic covenant, the marvelous covenant of grace, is a bond in blood sovereignly administered by God himself. Can you see the bond? Can you see the blood? Can you see God's sovereignty? Can you see that it was God's administration of the covenant of grace? And beloved saints, if we can see the bond and we can see the blood and we can see the sovereignty and we can see that it was administered by God, let us also see Christ. Verse 18 says, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land. God initiated the covenant. God brought Abraham into the covenant. God promised grace to Abraham and his offspring. God promised to fulfill the covenant, the gracious covenant conditions by himself. God is sovereign in salvation. You and I can take absolutely no credit. All glory be to Christ who did it all for us. Brothers and sisters, the beauty of Jesus Christ is right here in front of you in the Abrahamic covenant. Are you seeing the beauty of Christ? Are you looking for your assurance of salvation in the strength of your faith? In your commitment to God? In your determination and your grit and your ability? Or are you looking to the person and work of Christ as your assurance? He is your assurance. He is your confidence. He is your pledge. The last point is the most significant. Jesus Christ was killed and torn to pieces for you so you could enjoy the promised blessings of the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant of grace. Adam failed. Noah failed, Abraham failed, Isaac failed, Jacob failed, Israel failed, you failed, I failed. It was Jesus Christ, the second Adam, the promised serpent-crushing seed, the preeminent son of Abraham, the perfect and faithful Israel, the son of God who did not fail. Yet he was brutally killed and he was torn to shreds to suffer the curse of the broken covenant in order that you may live in him and enjoy the kingdom of God forever. Jesus did absolutely everything that his father had asked him to do, even to the point of brutal and bloody tearing and death and sacrifice on the cross. Jesus is our great covenant keeper whom God was pleased to kill and to tear and to bleed out for us on the cross. Our precious Savior Jesus Christ suffered the curse of the broken covenant for you. And by His shed and by His dripping blood, you are rescued, you are healed, you are freed, you are made alive. Oh, I love what Michael Brown and Zach Keel, how they put it. They write this, on the cross... His flesh was torn and his blood was shed as he suffered the judgment of God's holy wrath against our sin. In other words, God's blood oath in Genesis 15 was his commitment to the death of Christ for our sins. The promises made to Abraham could be fulfilled in no other way. End of quote. Does that move you? Does that do anything for you? 
in here, in here, in here. Oh, that the, that the gospel from Genesis 15 would move every one of us to tears. Tears of joy in the extravagant grace of our God. That we would not be distracted by dirt, but we would see clearly the radiant beauty of Christ in the gospel. The Abrahamic covenant foreshadows a curse-bearing, sin-bearing, wrath-bearing, cross-bearing Christ who was torn for our sins in order to give us a heavenly and an eternal land, a great kingdom ruled by a great king. God kept his promises by killing and tearing his own precious son. Just as Abraham believed, if you believe in the gospel, covenant promises of God, the righteousness of Christ will be imputed to you. And God will count you, even you, righteous. And you will inherit all the blessings of the covenant of grace in the person of Christ, in your union with Him. God makes a promise to you, and you know what? He makes a promise to your children as well. If you put your trust in Christ and believe that his torn body and shed blood are sufficient to save even you, then your salvation is sealed and it is confirmed with the covenant oath of God himself. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Yet, Abraham believed, right? He believed. God didn't believe for him. He believed. We we don't receive the blessings of the covenant of grace without faith. There is a condition. It's faith. But let me ask this. Where did Abraham's faith come from? Where does our faith come from? Are we able to meet the condition of faith in the covenant of grace apart from God in some way? Praise God. Don't miss this. Praise God that He sovereignly supplies us the faith through which we meet the condition of the covenant of grace. Faith is the condition that God Himself supplies to us. John T. Rhodes rightly said, it is the Spirit who brings us from spiritual death to spiritual life. Or in other words, it is the Spirit who enables us to believe in Jesus and thus keep the covenant of grace. And he added, so how can the covenant of grace be conditional and yet still gracious? Because God himself ensures we fulfill the covenant. This is awesome. What does this do for you? I loved studying this week. God walked through the bloody pieces. God promised to keep His covenant of grace. He didn't need your help. And apart from Him, you have no faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, Ephesians 2, 8. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faith. Galatians 5.22, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe, it has been granted to you that you believe. Philippians 1.29, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. John 3.27, even faith 
The condition that must be met to receive the blessings of the covenant of grace is sovereignly supplied by our covenant-keeping and covenant-making God. Now there is your assurance. There is your assurance. When you find yourself asking, Oh, Lord God, how am I to know that I am truly saved and accepted by you? How am I to know that all my sins are forgiven? How am I to know that I will make progress in holiness? How am I to know that I will have true peace, comfort, and joy in life and in death? How am I to know that I will have the strength to do your will and not completely wreck my life by walking away from you? Oh, Lord, how am I to know? There is one assurance. There is one comfort for your soul. And it is not that you chose God. It is not your commitment to God. It is not your determination to persevere. It is not anything that you have done or anything that you will do. If you will have any assurance at all in life and in death, any comfort in life and in death, it will be what God has promised and achieved for you in Christ. Imagine the smoking fire pot and flaming torch. Imagine it passing through those torn and those bloody pieces and then remember the words of your Lord and Savior as he tore the bread and he said, this is my body which is given for you. Imagine him taking the cup and saying, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. He was torn so you could live. He bled out so you could live. He bore the curse of God's justice so you could live. And when the precious Christ was beaten, torn, and crucified, it was God keeping his covenant promises. Can you see Christ? Or is all you see dirt? Aren't the word and sacraments intended to focus us on the sacrifice of Christ on the cross as the only ground of assurance of our salvation? Yes, indeed. The Holy Spirit teaches us in the gospel, in the word proclaimed, and teaches us in the beautiful sacraments that our entire salvation rests on Christ's one sacrifice for us on the cross. Dear saints, dear brothers and sisters, dear beloved, Christ is our assurance. Look to Christ and see that all the promises of God find their Yes, in him. Oh, that you and I would see Christ. Father, I thank you for this word from the Abrahamic covenant, this weird ceremony that is kind of foreign and distant from us today, communicates us the glorious reality of Christ, who was beaten, torn to shreds, and pierced for our sins for the sins of those who would believe, for the sins of your chosen people. Oh God, I pray that people today will look to Christ and see stunning beauty in Him. God, we get distracted by dirt on our glasses. 
And I pray that we won't for a minute take our eyes off of the cross and all that you accomplished there. Thank you, God, for Christ. Thank you for his beauty. And I pray that my brothers and sisters and I would see Christ. Amen.